The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I've talked with you over the last several weeks about some of the apparently useless things that Jesus does. So a few weeks ago he spoke... He spoke to a deaf man, and last week he told you and me, who are prone to worry, he told us not to worry. Today's gospel lesson, however, takes the cake. Let's begin by setting the scene. Jesus has just come from healing the centurion's servant, which he did from a distance, without even setting eyes on the servant, much less touching him. From a distance, he rewarded the faith of the centurion and gave him what he asked for. And you heard it this morning. A great crowd was with Jesus because of what he had done. A great crowd was with him. They'd seen his miracles and heard his teaching, and they formed this procession, which we could call a procession of life. They were thrilled by the life that he was bringing to the world. Wherever Jesus went, he brought life. But in the village of Nain, where he next arrived, there was another procession. A funeral procession, a procession of death. It was the funeral of a young man. And notice how the gospel writer, how Luke, lays out the details for us in a way to show us just how serious a situation this was. This is how he says it. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. One, two, three. A death blow. The crowd that accompanied her formed a funeral procession, a procession of death. They were mourning, I'm sure, not just the death of this young man, which was tragic in its own right, but also the death of this poor widow, for she had lost her livelihood. Her son was her only hope, not just emotionally, but materially. She had nothing left. She was now as good as dead herself. When this procession of death came into conflict with that procession of life following Jesus, it was a critical moment in his ministry. Sure, he could heal the sick and cast out demons and cleanse the lepers, but who can do anything about death? Death is the period on the end of the sentence, the point of no return. All that's left upon death is to offer condolences. There's no real comfort, no real hope to promise in the face of that terminal matter. 
There's no use in saying everything is going to be okay because, of course, now everyone can see through the lie. Everything is not going to be okay. When Jesus saw the widow, he had compassion on her. He must have compassion because he loves her. He must be moved by her misery because he is the God who created her. How could he not have pity on one of his own dear children? Do not weep, he says to her. And that's the start. That's the start of the apparently useless things that he does today. How crass and brazen and unfeeling is it to say to a widow who has just lost her only son, do not weep. But Jesus' words are not empty words. He came up and touched the bier, which they used to carry the coffin. He does not stay at a distance. He could have stayed at a distance. He had every reason to, for death is the one thing that renders everybody unclean. A dead body makes everything unclean. But he does not hesitate. Jesus wades into the putrescence of death, as it were, and endures the uncleanness so that he can speak to the young man. And there it is. Sure, lots of people talk to dead folks at the gravesite of your beloved as they close the casket or in the middle of the night. Lots of people feel the urge to speak to their deceased loved ones, but that's something fantastical. That body, that dead body is not listening. Those ears are not working. That mind is not processing those sounds into syllables and words, and that mouth will never utter a reply. It's useless. Speaking to a dead man is useless. And even more useless yet is telling a dead man to do something, giving him a command. Young man, I say to you, arise. There is a way that we talk about possibility. Possibility. There's a way that we talk about it that is very abstract and full of false hope. So it goes like this. People tell their kids things like, you can be whatever you want to be. Nothing's impossible. The sky's the limit. And of course, what we're after when we say things like that to our children is that they won't be dissuaded by obstacles in life. That they'll encounter things that are difficult and won't think that they're impossible. That they'll have some kind of grit to overcome and succeed. But the reality is, it's not true. You simply can't be whatever you want to be. A little girl cannot grow up to be a dad. And a little boy cannot grow up to be a mom. If you have parents who are both five feet tall, you cannot grow up to play in the NBA. If you are colorblind, the Air Force is never going to let you fly an F-16. You really can't be whatever you want to be. But we like to dream impossible dreams. It's the spirit of Don Quixote. Maybe you know that story and that song, to dream the impossible dream. It's a dream that wants to ignore the realities of this world for a bit of romance and some flights of fancy. But it's very, very easy to be a hero in your own dreamland. When we think of Jesus and how things are not impossible for him, when we hear him say that nothing will be impossible with God, we tend to think of it in the abstract. It's pretty easy to work through on our minds. Of course, God is God. He's all-powerful. There's no sickness too severe for him to cure, no enemy too strong for him to defeat, no stone too heavy for him to lift. Of course, all things are possible with God. But then, when we come face to face with something impossible and reality sets in, then we struggle to believe. Today's gospel lesson reframes the universe for us. 
Jesus does this useless thing, telling a dead man to arise, and then the impossible happens. And it's not just impossible in the sense of a deaf man hearing, or you and I not worrying, it's impossibly impossible. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. The entire story of this world is being rewritten. And just like that, you and I no longer live in a world of impossibility. If we live in a world where the dead can be raised, then there is nothing that should shock us. Nothing in God's word that should give us pause. There is nothing in God's will for us about which we could ever say, that'll never happen. Now you may be thinking about those times when you hope for a miracle like some cure to a disease or some scenario like what we heard of in our Old Testament lesson and our gospel this morning. We should talk about those moments, those moments when we hope for a miracle. But that is for a different sermon. Today, instead, I want to talk about those times when it is clear what God wants you to do and you find yourself thinking, that'll never happen. That'll never do any good. That'll just make things worse. It's impossible. I can't do it. There are two examples of this kind of thinking that I want to talk about this morning. The first has to do with responsibilities, and the second has to do with reconciliation. They both start with R, so it'll be easy to remember. First, responsibilities. You come into this world already bearing a set of responsibilities. As a son or a daughter of your parents, you owe to your mother and your father what is prescribed by the fourth commandment, that you honor, serve, love, and obey them. From the get-go, you have responsibilities. And one of the jobs of a parent is to teach a child what the responsibilities are according to God's word. Honor your father and mother. As you grow and mature, your responsibilities expand. You gain responsibilities towards your siblings if you have them. Lest you say, like Cain, am I my brother's keeper? You gain responsibilities towards your friends, your classmates, your teachers, your neighbors. If you marry... You acquire another huge responsibility to keep those promises of marriage vows towards your spouse. And if children arrive, yet another huge responsibility comes along to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have responsibilities towards your coworkers, and you have responsibilities towards your brothers and sisters in Christ and the church and your pastor. Your life is full of responsibilities, and from top to bottom, from beginning to end, all of those responsibilities come from God. You did not choose them. God chose them for you. They're found in his command to love your neighbor as yourself, and those responsibilities follow from your chief responsibility, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, to glorify him in all that you do. It's good to think about your life as a set of responsibilities that God has given to you for your good and for the good of those around you. But we live in a sinful world, and we ourselves have sinful flesh, and the people to whom we are responsible are sinners as well. And that means that at every turn, there is an opportunity for the devil to whisper. You should just let this one go. You shouldn't bother with this or that responsibility. You shouldn't grieve yourself by caring for your parents in their old age. You shouldn't upset the apple cart 
by leading your family as a husband or father. You shouldn't humble yourself by submitting to your husband as his beloved bride. You shouldn't risk making your kids crabby with discipline and devotion to God's word and keeping the Sabbath day. You shouldn't risk your job to call out dishonesty and wickedness. You shouldn't risk your friendships to stand up for the honor of God's name and his holy law. You should just let it go, the devil whispers. God's asking you to do something impossible. You're not up for it. And if you did what he's asking you to do, you'd make yourself such a mess that you'd never get out. Have you ever heard the devil whisper those lies in your ear? That's responsibilities. Here's another one. Reconciliation. Sin destroys relationships. It creates a wound, an injury that festers and rots. The worldly way of dealing with sin is simply to ignore it, to put it out of sight and out of mind, bandage over it. And so we stop talking to those who have sinned against us, or we move on in a superficial way while harboring hatred in our hearts and sharing that hate with others behind their back. We minimize sin, we act like it's not a big deal, and we desensitize ourselves to the pain that we feel and the pain that we cause. The world has no cure for sin because it knows nothing. It knows nothing of forgiveness. But Christians know better. In Christ, we have come to know what forgiveness is. In Christ, we have come to know what it means to have your debt erased and your relationships restored. In Christ, we know that reconciliation, even concerning the most grievous sins, reconciliation is possible. And not only that, for Christians, reconciliation is the only possibility. Jesus says that you should not come to this altar if you know that your brother has something against you. You should first be reconciled. He says that if a brother has sinned against you, you should seek him out in the hopes of restoration. And you should even enlist the help of the entire church if that's what's needed, because Christians cannot remain in sin. But again, the devil whispers, showing you the kingdoms of this world where forgiveness is never an option. And he says, it'll never work. He says, the sin is too deep, the pain too severe, the hearts are too hardened, and you, you are too weak. The best you can hope for is to put it out of sight, out of mind. Don't bother trying to forgive and be forgiven. That relationship is beyond repair. Just leave it alone, the devil says. Have you ever heard him say that to you? His lie, when it comes to both responsibilities and reconciliation, his lie is very simple. He says that there are some things that are just plain impossible. God is not realistic to ask you to do these things, the devil says. He's idealistic. That God of yours, he's too idealistic, and you should really be more practical than that. But it's a lie. Remember, we live in a world of impossible things now. We live in the realm of death and resurrection. We live in a kingdom where not only has Jesus raised one dead person, but by rising from the dead himself, he has made death powerless over you. He has brought you into his resurrection. He has shown that nothing is impossible for God, nor is anything impossible for you by faith. This requires some careful thinking and some examination of your life. Pay attention to your heart 
when you listen to God's word, when you hear preaching. Pay attention to those moments when you feel most uncomfortable, when you find yourself saying, surely God doesn't mean that. Surely he's not asking me to do that. Surely he understands that it's impossible. At those moments, remember what you've heard today. Jesus spoke to the dead man, young man, I say to you, arise, and that dead man sat up and began to speak. When you know what you should do, but you cannot imagine bearing the consequences, or you cannot imagine how it could possibly work out, remember, remember that Jesus raises the dead just as he has raised you. And when you do what God has given you to do, there are only blessings in store for you. They may not be the kind of blessings you imagine. They may not be the kind of blessings you imagine. In fact, it may feel like you have opened a Pandora's box of curses. When you do what God has given you to do, it may feel like you have opened a Pandora's box of curses. There's not much recovering from that, I know. I'll wrap it up here, okay? (laughs) But your confidence, this is the key. Pay attention to this. (laughs) Your confidence does not rest in what you can see or what you can feel or the outcome that you can imagine. Your confidence rests entirely on God's word and his promises to you. And he has never once, not once, led anyone astray, nor has he ever told a lie. And so when he says, this is my will for you, and I will bless you in the doing of it, he will keep his word. He has never once led any of his children into danger. He has only ever shepherded them into green pastures and still waters. All that's required of you is that you remember this, that Jesus raises the dead. To him alone be all glory now and forever. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.